Welcome everybody to another secu uh, security seminar here with Sirius. And before we get to our speaker, let me point out in the chat, there is a URL for several special speakers we have this month. October is Cybersecurity Month and um, Cybersecurity Awareness Month, really. And we've got some special speakers. The first one is coming up this Friday, and uh, that's Charles Fleming talking about some security challenges in AI. Uh, then two special ones next week. Monday, the former director of the NSA, the former commander of Cybercom, and I will be having a fireside chat Monday evening, and that will be streamed as well as live. If you can attend live, uh, I would encourage you to do so. I think it'll be more interesting and you may get a chance to pose questions. That'll be at Fowler Hall on campus free, no tickets required. And then later in the week on Thursday, uh, the US ambassador for cyberspace, Ambassador Nathaniel Fick is going to be speaking on campus. And then we have another one uh, later in the month of Rosa Smothers. So um, you uh, may want to, uh, check out the URL in the chat and we'll repost it later on. But let's get to our main speaker. We are delighted to welcome back a, a friend of the center and a speaker who's uh, given us some material before, someone who's uh, really an internationally known expert in the area of privacy protections, uh, Dr. Rebecca Harold, who does a podcast and uh, online blog as the privacy professor and she's going to tell us some about sorting surveillance benefits from harms. And I will leave it at that and say you can find more about her online if you're interested, but not to take away any more of her time. Rebecca, welcome. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me to speak on this topic today. It's a topic that I've been working pretty uh, deeply in for the past several years and I see it only expanding. So I think it's really good to bring more awareness to the issues. Technologies are increasingly used for tracking individuals and they're proliferating at an increasingly high rate in apps, in IoT devices, in websites, in a wide range of files, drones, roads, buildings, medical devices, and many more. Just consider for a little bit about the growing category of IoT products that are part of this surveillance universe, if you will. In 2015, a family of four had an average of 10 IoT devices connected to the internet. So that would be like smart televisions and thermostats and security cameras the number of active purchased IoT devices in the US back in 2019 was 9.9 .9 billion. And this number is expected to actually increase to 25 billion in the US and 76 billion devices worldwide by 2025. That's just a couple of years away. But guess what? I think that number is low everything is becoming a smart computerized 
connected, potentially surveilling type of device. Then just consider this, add to these numbers billions of homemade IoT devices, often using things like Raspberry Pis and similar type of technologies. Surveillance tech is not only impacting privacy in wider and more harmful ways, but they have also extended far beyond the digital world and they're also impacting physical safety. Surveillance tech tools can certainly be very beneficial for specific use cases when used responsibly and with informed awareness of the cybersecurity and privacy risks. However, in contrast to the benefits, there are high risks of harms to those whose activities and whereabouts are being tracked, particularly without their knowledge, and those with their knowledge but against their will. And today I'm going to cover some of these issues at a high level. Shown are a few of the recent images of a wide range of representations and views about what surveillance tech is. Now in these comparatively recent and new technologies are used for surveillance without establishing technical and non-technical boundaries and without taking risk mitigation actions the associated surveillance activities can and they have brought physical harms. And today I'm going to provide a definition of surveillance for use in this lecture to level set that understanding. I'm then going to describe a somewhat detailed use case for surveillance tech. Then I'm going to run through some high level use cases and I'll provide a discussion for the technical and non-technical security and privacy capabilities that need to be considered to be engineered within the surveillance products to support privacy and security protections and physical safety to prevent the associated harms. The concepts I use for IoT products, and that's where I've really worked the most with regard to surveillance, uh, but the concepts I use for the IoT products can also generally be applied to other surveillance tech as well, such as online digital trackers like Metapixels and other types of web beacons, conversion APIs and other types of online tech that are used to track. I'm also gonna provide some resources at the end for you to check out if you'd like to after the lecture. And then I'll take some questions if we have any time left. Now I do expert witness cases for a wide range of technical and non-technical security, privacy and compliance issues. One of the law firms I work with used this definition that you see on the screen uh, for some of our case reports. And yeah, I think it's pretty good. It's fairly comprehensive. So uh, we'll use that today for our basis of understanding and reference. But you know, sur surveillance technology covers a wide range of issues, right? Um, as you look at this definition, which I I'm not gonna read verbatim for you, but as you look through here, notice everything that, that it involves. Uh, at the core, there is the electronic surveillance aspect of 
these surveillance technologies. When these comparatively recent and new technologies are used for surveillance without establishing any technical or non-technical boundaries and without considering the security, privacy, and safety risks, and then not taking risk mitigation actions, and that happens a lot, by the way, the associated surveillance activities can and they have brought physical harms. And certainly there, there can be and are really great benefits from surveillance tech. There truly can, and I'm gonna go over some of those uh, during this lecture for specific use cases but there can also be great harms if they are not used responsibly with technical and non-technical controls implemented. And you notice I'm saying non-technical a lot because too many times folks who use surveillance tech thinks that all, everything that has to do with controlling them, controlling security and privacy is technical, but the humans have to be involved and they have to take actions too. No surveillance tech itself is all completely harmful too. And I, that's why I have my, um, my little decision uh, graph there. You know, some people think something's completely bad and others think it's gonna be completely good. But the fact is from all the surveillance tech that I've researched and that I've looked at, um, it can be used for both. Almost all surveillance tech can be used for both good and bad, and it just depends upon how the technology is engineered with the security and privacy and safety capabilities built in, how those capabilities are used, how the humans are using them, where they're placing them, whether or not there's associated rules, which is non-technical, such as organizational policies and legal requirements, if those are in place, it's up to you as software and hardware engineers to build in all necessary capabilities. It's up to you as security pros and privacy pros and business leaders and informed consumers to ensure that this type of tech is used appropriately. And so you can recognize when this type of tech may not be used appropriately and then you can take appropriate actions to try to get it to be used appropriately. So there's an unlimited number of specific types of surveillance tech products. Tech is always evolving and you're going to need to be aware of the ongoing emergence of new surveillance tech to understand if it should be used within your organization's ecosystem and also to Determine if you want it to be used within your own personal ecosystems, where you work, where you live, where you play, and then how to protect against the potential harms. And here are some examples of just three types of surveillance tech that are continuing to make the news. Now, a lot of you probably saw uh, the articles that came out in August of this year. New York police were announced that they were, well, they didn't announce they were going to, they were already using drones to monitor backyard parties because those were getting out of control. Well, the plan drew immediate backlash from privacy and civil liberties advocates, and it really raised questions about whether this type of drone use 
violated existing laws for police surveillance. Now, a privacy and technology strategist at the New York Civil Liberties Union said that it did break a 2020 city law that requires the New York Police Department to disclose and also explain its surveillance tactics. Like many cities, New York is increasingly uh, increasingly relying on drones for policing purposes. Data maintained by the by New York City shows the police department used drones for public safety or emergency purposes 124 times from January to August of this year, 2023. Guess what? That's up from just having drones used for those purposes four times in all of 2022. Drones were spotted in the skies after a garage collapse earlier this year. And also when there was a big giveaway event that probably some of you saw in the news too, that turned into a mob. And, you know, some of those drones were from the police department, but a lot of them were also from people who had their own drones and were getting them up there to see what was going on. Then something that I find quite interesting and intriguing and concerning is how um, different types of surveillance is being used for employee monitoring. I started covering employee implants used for physical and network access controls by, you know, not having to worry about passwords anymore. You had your password implanted within your body uh, for making payments at the company cafes and for other purposes. I started looking at those around 2016. And as I talked about this at different conferences, it seemed like the trend was really growing quickly. I found several at my sessions during the subsequent conferences and events that I had when I was asked to say, hey, how many of you have embedded, you know, chips that you've agreed to use for your um, company? More and more people were raising their hands, and I anticipate maybe some of you have them as well. Well, guess what? After this became news more often, the lawmakers became concerned for privacy and safety and security issues, of course, and understandably so. And so they started passing laws prohibiting embedded chips and employees without first getting informed consent, free consent from workers. Uh, for example, Indiana, and you, those of you uh, probably are mostly from Indiana, maybe not, but uh, for those of you from Indiana, you probably know that law that I'm talking about. So now there are concerns particularly in the EU about companies using brain monitoring technology. And I'm seeing this talked about more and more and lots of different ways of using brain technology, also known as neurotechnology. Uh, talking about possibilities to watch workers or also to hire workers, having them actually, you know, use these attachments during the interviews. Well, the UK Information Commissioner's Office, or the ICO, has expressed concern that there's a real danger of discrimination if neurotech is not developed and engineered and used properly. And I agree with that. And 
it, I found it really interesting that the concerns started to emerge even more as Elon Musk's Neuralink was being developed to connect computers to human brains. Then we have the online tracking, and this is what I mentioned uh, just a little bit ago. In the past two years, concerns have significantly increased about the use of web beacons in general and metapixels in particular to track activities of online users and users of digital files with the web beacons actually embedded within them. And web beacons have been being embedded within various digital documents for many years. I mean, it started in the 1990s, but of course it's become much more sophisticated and much more ubiquitous. The Federal Trade Commission actually recently took enforcement action against GoodRx and also BetterHelp, two digital healthcare platforms, because they shared user health data with third parties for the purpose of advertising, and it was done through the use of Metapixels. Now, on July 20th of this year, 2023, the Department of Health and Human Services sent letters in partnership with the FTC to 130 health systems and telehealth providers to emphasize the risks and concerns about the use of technology such as the Metapixel and Google Analytics and, and similar types of tracking tech that can track a user's online activities. The HHS, Department of Health and Human Services, has also emphasized that such use could very well be determined to be HIPAA violations. Think about it. When you're logging into a patient portal to look at your patient data, that's going to be protected health information. You're doing a, a type of operations for your, your health activities. So that's kind of the perspective and context that they're looking at that for. Now, I'm currently working also, in addition to my other expert witness cases, I have two separate ones that are completely different, but um, I'm working as an expert witness with Metapixels and how they're being used, one for entertainment industry type of use and another one for apps. And I'm going to provide testimony for specifically how the technology can be associated with specific individuals activities so that if you saw the metapixel uh, information that's being shared with marketers that it would be able to um, tell you specific individuals that's being tracked. So these are three very different types of surveillance covered in thousands of reports. Now I want to consider a detailed use case that I've used throughout the past few years uh, on several occasions, actually. So this is the use of IoT products by law enforcement. Now, IoT products is a broad category of diverse surveillance technologies, right? This and uh, the next few slides are some that I've actually used this year when doing work for law enforcement. Secure, uh, also security guard companies and some safety uh, professionals. There have been tens of thousands of articles and research reports published in the past 15 or so years about specific risks of law enforcement using IoT products. Now, early in that time frame, 
it was primarily about law enforcement using IoT, Internet of Things, the smart devices, to track people. However, now there are more and more reports about IoT being used to track law enforcement by the criminals. For example, earlier this year, officers from the New York Police Department discovered one of Apple's AirTags that were hidden underneath their car's hood. They weren't the ones that put it there, uh, but they had not been able to trace it to the owner. Now, the article stated it was likely discovered when officers were alerted to its presence from their Apple iPhone's anti-stalking features, which would have sent notification to their iPhones. And if you're using an Apple iPhone, hopefully, if that's something you're concerned with, you have that anti-stalking feature turned on. At least turn it on to, to see how it works. And you can test it out. Those are fun tests to do. But when the police were notified about the presence of that tag, they did a search under the hood and they found the air tag and it was actually sealed in a small plastic bag underneath their hood. So I told you that I'm going to talk about the uh, benefits and the harms. Well, when you're thinking about benefits uh, for law enforcement to use surveillance tech, there's a lot of benefits actually there that this type of technology can bring to them. It's brought numerous improvements and enrichment to law enforcement agencies. Uh, and it's reshaping how law enforcement are actually dealing with real-time data and using that data that's collected from the IoT products. Now, here are just a few of the benefits that law enforcement agencies are realizing with IoT products. And with my Easter egg chart here, providing one and sometimes more examples for each of the numbered benefits listed at the left. And yes, I went backwards in numbering just to see if anyone would notice that. But um, I've used this actually with several different law enforcement agencies and security guard groups. Each of these 13 beneficial uses uh, were being used in always at least one of them in all of the organizations present who I was talking to about these different surveillance activities and uh, technologies. So we pointed out a lot of benefits there, but now we also have many risks, right? So these are all just a few of the risks that are related to each of the benefits that were listed on the previous slide technical and non-technical risks, lack of technical capabilities built within the IoT products is you know, a huge problem. This was something I uh, worked as a subject matter expert and also co-author of a lot of the uh, informative references and research papers for the NIST IoT development team for three years. And, you know, the lack of capabilities being built into IoT as we uh, talked and also as I talked to the surveillance tech vendors at various conferences, you know, a lot of times they tell me people don't care about those type of capabilities, but 
they really do. Uh, they just assume that they're already in there. That's why they don't say anything about them to the vendors usually. Lack of manufacturers and vendors providing training also for secure use of IoT products and for establishing privacy settings is another huge problem. You can put capabilities in there, but when you don't implement those by default, then the users, and I've heard many, many users tell me this, they assumed that those different settings would be turned on because they were advertised as being a feature. Well, um, no, usually those are not turned on by default. Oftentimes you have to turn them on also for misuse of the products. And I could discuss each of these, of course, <laughs> in a one hour uh, class for each of them, <clears throat> but I will make my slides available after today's session. And also if there's a specific item on this list you want to revisit or discuss after I get through all the slides, we can come back to this page. But now what I wanna do is so that was the deep dive and I went through that fairly quickly, but hopefully that gave you a good feel for the type of of inspection of the benefits as well as the harms that can be done with surveillance tech. But now I want to provide an overview of some use cases for other real life situations. Now in the past five to 10 years, there have been thousands of cases of surveillance tech being used to track stalking victims. This is another area I've been looking at. It's really disturbing um, to see how often these are being used. In fact, we've had at least eight different tech, tech tracking cases here in the central Iowa. I'm based out of Des Moines, Iowa. And we've had a lot here just in the past few years. And most recently, there was the case of an owner of three bars, Mr. McFadden, who you see in the photo on the screen. And uh, he owned three bars in the Des Moines area. He had planted a GPS tracking device on his ex-girlfriend's vehicle. And then not only that, but he had his friend, Mr. Allen, who also owned a bar in the Des Moines area, to track her while Mr. McFadden was out of state. So we had two people tracking this woman um, constantly, basically. Now McFadden pleaded guilty to using the GPS device and he pleaded guilty to harassment. He received a one year suspended sentence and got one year of probation. He was also ordered to attend a one-on-one -on -one class offered by the Iowa Department of Corrections. He also has a five-year no contact order. A few uh, hours later after he got his sentence, then the other bar owner who asked about, you know, who stalked the woman when McFadden was out of town, Mr. Allen, he pleaded guilty to disorderly conduct and he's going to pay a $500 fine and he has a five year no contact order. Now, if you think these penalties were light, well, I agree with you because when I heard that, I thought, oh, that does not seem like a very harsh sentence for actually following someone and knowing where they're at at all times. However, their harshest penalties probably resulted as a result of their actions. And it came from the West Des Moines City Council and also 
the Des Moines City Council, they denied these two men their liquor license renewals for their bars, their businesses, stating that the councils utilized an Iowa law that says cities can deny liquor licenses to owners who are, quote, not of good moral character, end quote. So McFadden lost his liquor license for all three of his restaurants and bars, so I understand. And I believe Mr. Allen, the owner of one bar, also lost his liquor license. And the last I've heard and read about what's going on with that is that they've both tried to sell their businesses but from what has been reported so far there's been no interest in them due to the notoriety now associated with them as indicated earlier surveillance tech is not all bad and it's not all good it can be used for both so now let's go to the right side of the screen and i want to explain a little bit about something that i've been working with um, some work with some community-based organizations, or CBOs is probably what you've heard them referenced as, but I've been working with them over the past several months to create some programs that use surveillance tech to actually help protect those who are being stalked, to provide a way to allow those who are trusted by the targeted victims to know where those targeted victims are at. So that way they have someone they trust who can, who can help them. And the, the targeted victim knows that someone is always aware of where they're at. Um, so this is something where, uh, you know, kidnappings are common uh, and also other types of abductions are common. So for example, um, for one group that I've spoken with, they have Native American tribal members, domestic assault victims is another group, there's at-risk um, witnesses who have also been threatened. Um, those are the folks who are using these tracking technologies, these types of surveillance technologies, to have someone to be able to know where they're at, so if something does happen, they can get to them quickly, wherever their location is. And also to those who live a, alone, they can use them. Those who are at risk, such as maybe the elderly or those who have other types of physical and or mental challenges. Um, so, you know, this tracking can be used beneficially if you set up the rules for how they should be used and depending upon the type of tracking tech that they use. Um, Often this type of tech that you want to use can't be easily noticed, such as a variety of digital trackers and jewelry and keychains. Uh, some organizations, none that I've worked with so far, but um, there have been some who have uh, that I've heard of who have high risk members who are actually using those implantables that I described earlier. These types of non-obvious tech tools are used since victims typically have their phones and their smartwatches and other obvious types of tracking tech taken from them by their abductors and by other criminals. I'm also helping the organizations to identify the tools 
that they can also use best for them to locate digital trackers in their vicinities. Now, of course, the iPhone has um, an alert, but not everybody has an iPhone. And also, uh, those don't always work well because actually some of these tracking tech is built and engineered to defeat those types of alerts. So there's other types of digital trackers that you can use um, to identify when those types of tech are in the vicinity based upon you know, Bluetooth and RFID and other types of emissions. And a couple of those are in the lower right part of the screen. So those help to check for the digital trackers that may have been planted in their vehicles, in their bags, in their luggage, in their pockets. And, uh, you know, other places that you really don't check that often. And if they believe they might be being tracked, there have been some of those CBOs who are investing in digital tracker detectors for their clients to use. And there's many different kinds of detectors out there. Now, the ones similar to those shown are typically available in the 40 to 50 US dollar range, and they work pretty well. Um, professional strength detector devices are also available. You can find some good ones in the 150 to 250 US dollar range too. So now let's look at something else that I think this is just exciting as far as medical breakthroughs go. Uh, medical devices, smart pills. These just fascinate, fascinate me to no end. I absolutely see smart pills as hugely beneficial, but, but they must be secured throughout all parts of the product. And those parts are communicating to other things, to clouds, to apps, uh, to laptops and so on. So you need to make sure that the entire product, all parts, all components are secured. Uh, to keep the data safe, to, to keep the data accurate. Just think, if you're using smart pills to provide um, healthcare, the data absolutely has to be accurate. Otherwise, you could harm the patient. Um, by 2024, it's projected that smart pills are going to be a $1.5 billion industry in the US. And these are really remarkable. So I'll quickly tell you about uh, some of these, the pill cam, uh, that's so interesting. It's a colon system and it actually allows for you to take this pill and it will give you a direct visualization of the colon, a capsule endoscopy providing clear images of the colon to support the detection of polyps with a minimally invasive patient-friendly device that's containing everything needed to perform an endoscopy procedure. It records images and interprets the results and so on. So that's in the lower left. Now the upper right, that is really interesting. It's a digestible smart pill. And what's cool about it is the metals in the circuit board are made out of magnesium and copper. So magnesium and copper, think about that. They're not bad, you know, a human body can digest those. So you have, you swallow them and they're activated by the human digestive uh, system fluids. And the data is being sent from these digestible uh, magnesium and copper uh, components. They're being sent via patch on the skin with Bluetooth connection to a computer or phone app. And then they dissolve 
right into the human system, unlike the other pill, which um, does not. That data then is used to determine problems or uh, drugs to prescribe and so on. So controlling access to the data collected by smart pills, which is typically stored in multiple places, is critical to ensure the patient receives the correct diagnosis and then any necessary procedures and medications. Just think if you knew somebody was taking these pills and if you knew of a vulnerability within the components of those types of medical devices, what if you could hack into there and change the data? That would change what type of care and medication the patient receives. You could do some real harm there. And I do worry about that. I see that as something on the, the horizon. Drone case, uh, drone use. So I've done a few use cases for privacy in state and city parks. And in one case, we were doing a privacy impact assessment or PIA for short. And uh, their plans to use uh, drones. They wanted to identify environmental damage within the park. And so they wanted to do, though, uh, a PIA to see what kind of privacy issues the use of drones could bring to them. Now, certainly the drones can be very beneficial uh, for this purpose, right? Because drones can get to places that you simply cannot get to uh, by walking or by seeing from you know below up high and so on so however before putting them into use they wanted to identify the privacy risk and these are some of the issues that we reviewed um, and the privacy considerations and the associated questions i ask and these types of questions that i ask are questions that you can ask for any type of similar uh, PIA, you know, these are the basics of privacy and risk determination is asking uh, these types of questions. Um, a couple of the primary concerns uh, that we identified was for capturing the drone video on the video images of the folks who are in the park, and then also capturing images of those folks who are outside the park, but nearby. And so these were a few of the mitigation actions listed at the bottom of the screen uh, that we collectively came up with. And they ultimately used more than one of these mitigation actions, and then they deployed the drones. And after they deployed the drones, not only were they happy to know that like the face blurring worked, the GPS worked, but they also found quite a bit of environmental damage in areas that they would not have been able to access otherwise. So there they experienced a lot of benefits and they mitigated the harms by doing the PIA first. So I love that they uh, thought about that uh, ahead of time and actually did that before they put it into production. Smart highways and streets, smart vehicles and smart tractors, these are going to be the norm. They just will be in a few years. Smart pavement with built-in Wi-Fi. These devices all need security and privacy capabilities to be engineered within them. Fast, low-level security measures can be incorporated into the design and uh, the build of 
microchips also running alongside additional measures that are incorporated within the firmware and the software, real-time detection systems that are continuously monitoring the connected systems that are fitted to the vehicle, fitted to the smart light poles, fitted to the smart signs. Um, all of those can be in there to ensure that any unusual activity is going to be reported as soon as it's noticed and then prevented as much as possible. Vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle, uh, communication systems are also being created. So that's very interesting too and opens up even more privacy um, concerns. Protocols for firmware updates to enable a vehicle's software security to be updated through over-the-air transmissions, those are being created. Understanding the threats is key to making sure that these connected cars and highways and, and tractors and other type of vehicles and machinery are secure. External connections are needed for information, manufacturing data, diagnostics, <clears throat> data gathering, external connections for, you know, some types of functionality. Excuse me while I get a cough drop here, <clears throat> get a frog out of my throat, driver profiles, and even more. Now, I describe on this page in the upper left a project that I did for a smart highway and parks uh, parts manufacturing business in 2015 to 2016, and I was glad that they wanted to have an assessment of their plans so they could then mitigate the discovered risk before they actually finished building out their systems and then putting it into production. And there were many, such as the risk of USB charging skimmers being used in any of the many light poles where they were planning to put those USB chargers within. Up until a few years ago, I lived my entire life on farms, working on them when not doing technology and IT work. And for over 20 years on a farm here in Madison County, Iowa, where I took my sons when they were young, we went war driving on the gravel roads through uh, the farmlands. And while people were actually out in the tractors and combines, you know, harvesting in the fall, like they're doing right now. My sons were sitting and using their MacBooks in the back seat, using what was built into them to find open access points. And even back then, with what was the farmers actually put into the tractors themselves, but some of the tractors had some of the early GPS um, capabilities within them, they found numerous open access points uh, within a lot of those tractors. And so that gave me an opportunity to visit with my neighbors, right? To say, I don't know if you realize it, but we could have hacked in and changed your settings and that would have ruined if they were doing, um, let's say, uh, planting the soybeans, we could have changed it. So instead of planting their soybeans every few inches, we could have made it so it did it every few, few feet and that would have really uh, ruined their crop. So now farm and agriculture equipment is becoming capable of being fully autonomous. But if hacked, again, the crops could be destroyed in many ways. Not only that, but the livestock could be injured or killed or stolen. There's still a lot of uh, livestock being stolen off of farms. And 
especially now that you have the digital trackers that a lot of farmers are putting on their cattle, on their sheep, on their, you know, any type of um, livestock that they have, if those aren't secured and someone knows where those cattle are, it makes it very easy to take them in the middle of the night. Uh, the equipment could also create pathways into the farmer's own home networks, into the barn networks, and many other places. So that that is a huge area of concern that I'm also looking at. Now, there's endless endless ways in which IoT products can be used to improve our lives, just as many uh, ways that they can be misused to cause harm and steal data and more. A wide, wide range of crimes. Those are the harms. This infographic is one that my privacy and security brainiacs team created, and it's available for free download from our site. I put the URL there. Uh, and again, I'll provide my slides, but it goes into more details about some of the vulnerabilities and threats that are involved. And I'm going to refer to this um, for my next two use cases. So one of the things, too, that you need to think about is not only how you engineer and use your surveillance tech, but how do you dispose of it? How do you reuse it? How do you sell it to others and so on? It's not only for IoT though, it's for all types of surveillance tech. Software applications on hardware that you're selling, you're giving away, those could contain a lot of data on them and or through them to cloud locations that maybe the user wasn't even aware of that could ultimately support unauthorized access into your own digital ecosystems. Make sure that if you're passing your tech on to new users uh, or you obtained tech from previous owners that you completely remove all the data and do a reset of the product. You don't want to leave your password and your other authentication information on there. There have been many security incidents and privacy breaches that have occurred from using used surveillance tech. For example, from the article that's shown here on the upper right, um, on the first night of a home buyer being in his newly purchased home, the homeowner heard after the clock struck 11.30 p.m. at night, this canned voice come over the loudspeaker and say good night, and then made this sound that, you know, it was like every lock in the house suddenly shut down on its own. Now, eventually, the new owner was able to change the settings in this built-in security system in his new home, but he stated, you know, I'm still technically a guest in my own home because of how it was set up previously. Uh, that's something that realtors, this, I've, I've written a couple of articles for realtor uh, magazines uh, and websites talking about how they need to make sure that if they're selling a smart home, that they take care of security and privacy. Now, I mentioned too being an expert witness. So I've done two different types of IoT stocking cases. And in one of the IoT cases, the stocking occurred not because of there being a lack of technical controls within the IoT device itself. It was a smart car and it had plenty of security and privacy technical capabilities. The tracking, the stocking, it was done because the contracted call center that took the calls from the vehicle owners about 
access to the smart car controls and the associated data and online portal, including the location data, they were given completely unacceptable instructions from the car manufacturer for how to respond to their car customers who called them, who owned these smart cars and needed to get to those portals and that data. In this case, a woman owned a smart car. She had logged into her smart car portal and she noticed a few changes and thought that was weird, but she was very concerned because her estranged ex-husband, who was under a restraining order for domestic assault with a deadly weapon, was still threatening her. So she contacted the smart car call center, changed her authentication, had implemented multi-factor authentication information, and she told the call center folks multiple times in this first call to them about this, do not allow anyone else to access her account. Do not give anyone else her login information. Just do not give any type of access to anyone calling, trying to get into her account. And she explained she was in danger from her ex-husband. The call center told her, we put this in your notes. We put it in your account. Don't worry. They assured her that uh, if any time, you know, anyone else called that they would not um, worry about it. Well, she worried about it because she noticed more changes a few days later in her account. She contacted the call center again. They assured her again. And a few days later, they once more gave, after they were social engineered into giving it, the stalking, uh, assaulting ex-husband access to her account. And by this time, the woman and her four-year-old daughter were hiding in yet another hotel, trying to not be found uh, and her ex-husband had once more, you know, got the social engineered call center staff into giving him. And that's why I was talking about non-technical so often. This is a non-technical control. They were social engineered. He obtained her location and he drove uh, into the hotel. He social engineered again his way through the front desk to her hotel room. No one was there. So he went in the room and waited. When the woman arrived uh, with her daughter, why it was dark inside the room, after the woman and her daughter entered the room, she shut and locked and deadbolted the door, turned on the light, and her ex-husband attacked her and severely beat her in front of their four-year-old daughter who was screaming. And by the time the hotel broke down the door, the assaulter had broken out of the window of the first floor room and gotten away. His ex-wife was almost dead on the floor. And this was a very important example of why it's important to uh, have non-technical controls in place just as much as those technical controls because humans can always defeat any type of technical controls that might be in place. So let me get now to a, a quick list here as we come towards the end of some of the types of you know, security and privacy actions that users and targets of surveillance tech need to actually uh, implement. Keep in mind most surveillance tech products, again, including um, IoT, 
but it goes beyond just IoT. They are not, they are not secure by default for the large part. Here's a list of the minimum security and privacy actions to take for security tech products. More security and privacy actions may be needed based upon the product goals and the intended uses and the context within which you're going to be using that type of surveillance um, technology. And you know you can see more at some of the IoT information I have on our website. Now also, uh, with regard to establishing um, rules, this is getting again to the non-technical. When using surveillance tech, within an organization, you need to have minimum actions to take to bolster your security and privacy that's related to the use of surveillance tech and incorporate these within your documented policies and procedures and provide training for them. Add to this list based upon your own unique organizational risk environment for where surveillance tech will be used, not only within your facilities, but also keep in mind you, you need to have these types of policies that are applicable remotely wherever work activities and access to your um, business work is going on. So here are a few pointers to resources mentioned within or related to today's lecture and where you can find them. And here are a few more. I always have lots of pointers to more information. So um, to recap, over the past hour, I've provided a definition of the surveillance, and that was the within the framework of what I was talking about when I went through all those different use cases. Uh, I recommend that you create your own definition of surveillance tech as it relates to your own organization. If you want, use that example as a basis and edit it to fit your own uh, environment. I also described in detail a use case for law enforcement and, you know, how they looked at both the benefits and the harms of surveillance tech. Um, also highlighting the point that surveillance tech is not all bad. There's a lot of benefits. Provided several high level um, surveillance tech use cases, variety of technologies, but there's so many more technologies I didn't even hit upon. Uh, some security and privacy rules and controls, and just a couple of resource lists. And um, for the rest of the time, I think we have, what, maybe five minutes left. But uh, in that last five minutes, I'm happy to either take questions or I, I welcome your comments and points or your own views about surveillance tech privacy and security harms and benefits. Well, thank you, Rebecca. We have two questions in the Q&A. Oh, okay. I hope you can access at the bottom of your screen. There it is. Yes. So if you would uh, maybe address those. Sure. So I'll start at the top. Um, well, let me start at the bottom because I can answer that in quickly and then I'll take a little more time. So frameworks exist for conducting privacy impact analysis. Oh, yes, there are frameworks. And in fact, um, I mentioned I did a lot of, well, well, maybe I didn't mention, but I've done a lot of work for the National Institute of Standards and Technology over the years. And I, I was part of their um, privacy framework development team. And they have um, a good framework for doing a privacy impact uh, analysis, also privacy risk assessments. They have 
um, the privacy framework itself. So I would, uh, you know, recommend you go out there and there are many other frameworks out there as well, but that would be a good place to start. Um, and, you know, change them and update them to fit your own uh, context of environment. But now I'll go back to feasible and economical it is to make tech. I'm glad you asked that because when we talked with the vendors, whenever I've talked to vendors and the groups where we um, talked about these things and uh, the vendors always said, oh, it's going to cost too much to put that in there. Or, you know, for these type of tech, like um, for just the, the disks that are, are sending out tracking you know tracking tags or tracking this you know it's not feasible it's going to take up too much power and so on there are ways there are low power ways that you can do it so i think what organizations what vendors and i'm not sure um if you're from a vendor that's building it but you can make tech that uh will be valuable um just think about too what i like to point out is if you're spending you know, over a million dollars for marketing already for this new tech, certainly it's going to be worth it to prevent harms to your customers. And also it will give you a competitive advantage by saying and actually putting into your marketing that you do have security and privacy. So is it feasible? It's absolutely feasible. I mean, I started as a systems engineer. It's feasible because you can engineer, if you can engineer tech to track people, you can engineer track uh, or engineer tech to secure the data and also to protect privacy. It, you just need to have the motivation to do it and the support of executives. Economical, it depends on how you decide to implement those controls. Um, and that's why you really need to have someone to identify all the possibilities because unfortunately too many times vendors think, oh, we're gonna have to do this one type of thing to meet this requirement. Well, look at all the options. I mean, there's always more than one option. I think uh, to add to that, Rebecca, similar through cybersecurity, the, the two issues, first of all, it's much more difficult to retrofit than it is to design in. And you know that as a designer and, and looking at this area. So that's why this is valuable for those listening in to think about when you're in the early design stages, it's much easier to make decisions early rather than later. And the second thing about economical is it's a question of what you value. Uh, we don't necessarily value privacy or security or similar qualities in the same way that we do selling information on people, for instance, the advertising dollars. Um, if we had a way to actually measure the value of privacy, maybe we wouldn't be so quick to give it away. Um, and, and that's, I think that's a fundamental problem through our field. We can make money off of violating privacy and violating security, but we don't really understand how to value the protection of it. I, I, do you have anything to, to comment to that? Well, I absolutely agree with you. And what I want to add to your retrofitting, security and privacy that is built in is always so much more effective and better 
than trying to retrofit it. Can you imagine if you purchased cars without brakes and you had to to actually install brakes after you purchase the car? Those brakes aren't going to work very good because they weren't engineered to work with the full design, the full ecosystem of the car. And it's the same thing with other types of technology. Yep. Well, let's, uh, if you could answer one more question and then we'll conclude for the day. Okay, let's see. From Nicholas, increased efforts and progress to improve non. Well, you know, there are. So um, that was something when I was uh, with the IoT group for three years, why there was a lot of talk about, you know, not only did we create a, a catalog of non-technical controls, I hope you go out there to the NIST IoT uh, development site and you'll find um, a large catalog of both technical and non-technical, but with regard to increased efforts, yes, there's an effort going on right now, and I think it's in um, like a pilot group uh, that's looking at consumer labels, so building or creating consumer labels to communicate uh, to consumers before they purchase something, um, you know, about privacy and about security, but not only that, there are still efforts going on to try to um, to have the uh, manufacturers and the vendors to actually provide more non-technical. And again, if you look at the NIST documents that we, we created, we really emphasize that a lot. And I'm I'm kind of um, you know thinking, hey, some of the vendors thought these were really good ideas to provide you know like videos and describing how to use their products securely that their consumers could use and and also providing updates regularly to them. So I am seeing increased efforts much more than even just five years ago. I think though it's not mainstream yet. We haven't seen it, you know, on commercials on um, the major networks, but who knows, someday we might. I mean, we see now uh, uh, commercials for routers from Cisco on Sunday morning talk shows. So maybe we'll see privacy and security for IoT some Sunday morning too. And, and let me suggest if you missed the talk in this seminar series by Dr. Stu Shapiro a couple of weeks ago, uh, go back and look at the recording there because he talked about privacy framework efforts uh, ongoing at MITRE. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much, Rebecca. It's lovely to see you again. Hopefully one of these days we'll get to see you in person. Yes, and, thank you very much. Uh, for everybody who tuned in, we'll, we'll have another talk next Wednesday, actually next week. We have several talks uh, in the chat. You'll find the link for the uh, Cybersecurity Awareness Month talks. And uh, you can find out all kinds of information this month about security, privacy, and how to keep yourself safe. In the meantime, have a great evening, and we'll, we'll see you again soon.